Hi everyone, welcome to episode 19 of Tick Tech Talk, the Made by Google event recap. I'm Candace. And I'm Rob. And uh, we kind of, guys, we promised you that we would kind of deviate from the uh, constant Apple discussion. I think this is a perfect time to kind of dive into what Google has announced this week. Mm, certainly. So I'm um, just kind of go from the top. Uh, they announced a new Wi-Fi system, a new Chromecast that supports 4K, the Google Home peripheral, and two Pixel phones. Pretty yeah. exciting. And so this is a really important, I think, pivotal event for Google, um, just because they don't hold these types of events uh, quite often, probably annually. And it's also their real deep dive into them making the hardware. So they're both the software and hardware creators of these devices. Mm, definitely, definitely. And not to bring it back to Apple, but it's definitely taking a page out of their book, it looks like. And um, I'm interested to see the results. Yeah, and uh, we talk, one of our favorite podcasts mutually, right, is uh, Control Walt Delete mm-hmm. uh, with Neil Patel, the editor in chief of The Verge, and of course, Walt Mossberg, one of the most storied technology journalists. And he's been suggesting this for for what years that Google really focused on creating great hardware to kind of match it with the software quality that they've been producing. Yeah, to that point, I mean, uh, Mossberg has been talking about this for, I think it was two years ago now, he wrote his column that Google should make their own hardware. And, uh, you know, Microsoft's been doing this with the Surface line lately. So it seems a common trend that companies are looking for this vertical integration between hardware and their services, delivering that true Microsoft or true Google or true Apple experience. Um, yeah. And it's definitely a strategy Apple pioneered, has been dominating, I'd say, for the past, uh, I guess, decade now. And I want to maybe make the argument that they're probably closer aligned with Microsoft strategy. I'm not sure how you could measure their success, but they have this balance between doing their own hardware and software packages, like with the Surface line and things, but they don't alienate the OEMs, right? They still produce things, or different manufacturers still produce stuff with Microsoft software. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's an important caveat. They're still primarily distributing software. They're not uh, a hardware and services company like Apple. It's services, and then we build hardware to shut those off. Yeah. Definitely a difference. So we're going to start off with kind of their announcements. We're going to kind of start from kind of the smallest packages up to the most, probably the most pivotal thing or the most showcase thing. But the first thing is the Google Wi-Fi system that they released. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a one Wi-Fi or three pack. Three three for 300 bucks. And uh, honestly, it kind of looks like and definitely reminded both of us of the Erio, which is an independent company focused on making these router systems where, you know, if you own a larger home or something that has difficulty with the standard router, you buy multiple pucks put them throughout your home and get really great uh, internet service. Yeah, uh, this seemed pretty exciting. I, I'm certainly, you know, routers aren't the most exciting thing anymore. Wi-Fi is pretty ubiquitous, but uh, we have a house where uh, the router is on the opposite side of the refrigerator and the microwave, and we had some connectivity trouble, especially when you went upstairs. So we got a repeater from Linksys, mm-hmm. uh, and that seems to do the trick. So, you know, with the successes of that, I'm really excited about something like this. Uh, I've heard great things about Arrow. And it seems like a really promising product. Google has been delivering pretty well with a lot of their other networking products, notably the... Um, the OnHub. The router. OnHub, thank you. So uh, I'm excited to see it. You know, Google has a reputation for doing high-quality hardware, and the internet is definitely something they're experienced in dealing with. They've had that Loom project, a lot of other things. So I think it'll be really good. I'm very excited for their routers. Yeah. Um, do you know if they're going to be selling them through traditional like hardware channels, like through Best Buy or Staples and things like that, too? I saw it on their website that you can order it, but I wonder, you know, I wonder how mainstream they're going to push it. I know they sell the OnHub and all the major, major retailers, but they really have that brand presence, even in traditional retail locations. You know, if you're someone that owns an Android phone, 
um, you don't own any Apple products, the easiest thing is instead of buying that complicated Linksys router to get the one that has the Google branding, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am really not sure. I know they put the OnHub, like you said, um, all over the place. So I would assume it'd be the same for the Air, yeah, for the um, Google Wi-Fi. We're both looking on the website right now. Um, <laughs> you can join the wait list. Um, but I don't think, yeah, like we'll probably see probably closer to November, a holiday season, um, how they're going to distribute. But I think this is a perfect opportunity for them to kind of take over the same space where, you know, usually if you own Apple products, the natural instinct is to get, you know, an Airport Express or an Airport Extreme or a Time Capsule. Mm-hmm. This is a perfect solution. And even for people like who are on Apple products, this is really, really compelling. Um, I've heard great things about the Erio from uh, a lot of different technology reviewers. In my house as well, we struggle a lot with the Wi-Fi connectivity. Um, most of my house, the floors are made of marble or granite. So the signal is just, it just dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we struggled with many different setups. And uh, we have a Time Capsule now, and it's one of the newer ones with AC, and it Ooh. works okay. Um, but we even consider getting another Airport Express to cover another corner of the house. Yeah, I'll have to see. Um, definitely looking at some reviews for this, but it looks promising. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after my college career, when I'm hopefully finding a place to live that isn't a dorm with Wi-Fi provided, I'll be looking at a solution like this or the airport. For your like mansion, that. right? You need one for all six floors. So certainly, you just buy two, three-packs. Two, packs. two three-packs. Six-pack, they call it. And it would still be a little bit under, just over the price of a three-pack of Aereos. That's actually true, yeah. We should probably mention that Aereo is selling their three-pack for, I think, $500? Yeah, and they're independent right now. And so we imagine that... Um, so I've heard, I think, on the Mac Power users that the creator of Aereo is, like a, again, a subject matter expert on, like, wave beams and formations. And he spent his whole career studying how Wi-Fi signals travel through houses and stuff. So this idea of... Um, you know, multiple hotspot points working together um, is actually kind of pioneered by him. You don't see that. Usually when you walk into a Staples, you buy the crazy-looking alien-looking router with all the antennas. He argues that those antennas are really just cosmetic, mm. that what you need um, is less interference and better communication between devices. And so I think that's why you pay the premium. You didn't really have competitor. But I wouldn't be surprised if Eero either drops their price or they have no choice but to be bought out by a larger company. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Eero seems... Or Eero, I'm not really sure how you pronounce Eero, it, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> Seems like, um, at this point in time, the market leader for this new uh, paradigm on Wi-Fi routers, but it will be interesting to see how they compete with something like this. I'm not sure what their margins are, but I'm sure Google can outdo yeah. them in supply and stuff like that. So I hope they survive. They seem like a solid company. Or I honestly wouldn't mind if like Apple snatched them up and you, know, you buy $150 for kind of an airport express that works in a way. Because the Airport Express does act as a bridge with other um, Apple devices, but it's not built with that same um, communication in mind. It extends the signal more like your Linksys repeater, but there's some magic sauce going on with both the Google Wi-Fi hub and the Eero. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I'm really not too versed in, to be honest with you, but that'd be pretty interesting. I'd like to see something like that happen. That'd be really interesting. So, thumbs up on the Google Wi-Fi. Yeah, definitely thumbs up. That seems like a really solid product that could appeal to anyone. Um, the next thing is probably a nice transition because once you get this really great Wi-Fi signal and you're paying for your 150 <laughs> megabits down, all you want to do is stream 4K. Um, so like what a lot of leaks said that Google was going to be releasing an updated version of the Chromecast. So it's the Chromecast Ultra, and probably the biggest thing is it has built-in 4K capabilities and a built-in Ethernet jack, yeah. I imagine, to support the 4K streaming that you would have. <laughs> yeah, the Chromecast Ultra and the Wi-Fi are kind of just, um, I don't want to say iterative because the Wi-Fi is new, but... Um, not the most exciting products. They're utilities, like, right? Yeah, they are fairly utilitarian. Um, I mean, they are new and they are definitely valuable in their own right. Um, I think the fork. I mean, the, there's not really you know, anything negative to say about them. They're great improvements. 
Um, Chromecast Ultra sounds pretty compelling. I'm surprised how expensive it is, though. I was about the same thing. The price point is what kills me, because the reason why my house currently has five Chromecasts is because we go to Target, they're either on sale or they're just super cheap. We realize that one TV doesn't have it, and it's an easy purchase. I don't think the jump to 4K, personally, is enough for me to almost double the price. Yeah, I guess they're definitely positioning this more as, like, a um, an enthusiast-type project, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's already so many Chromecasts, and, you know, I have the Chromecast 1, and I have the Chromecast 2, actually, and the difference between them are negligible, excuse mm-hmm. me, for everyday use. Um, they're almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So something like this where it just adds 4K, it seems like, definitely seems like something for an enthusiast who is paying for that expensive Wi-Fi package yeah. and has that nice 4K TV and is willing to taste the future just a little bit early um, and is also, I guess, locked into the Google ecosystem. Yeah pretty severely so I mean, it's cool i guess maybe the more exciting things here are um they're gonna have google play movies in 4k yeah so the content is getting there for 4k 4k seems like it's gonna stick unlike some of the 3d stuff yeah but um my question is is the 69 dollars? it's a price for enthusiasts but i feel like once you go past the 50 dollars price point it's hard to forgive a company not to give you another interface with the device so look let me make the argument, right? Like, if you're paying 30 or $35 for the Chromecast standard, right, it's kind of okay that you don't need the remote, and a lot of the manufacturing costs might go to the cost of the remote and the additional size. When you get something with a price point of $69, right, that's the same price point as the a lot of Rokus, um, the older generation Apple TV, and, like, other boxes that have a more traditional interface. Do you think there's going to be kind of a disconnect with standard consumers seeing less device and realizing it's just the puck? Or do you think it's really not an issue? Yeah, I think this one can go both ways. Um, so for, as a standard consumer, um, I think there's a couple ways to look at this. You have your really uninformed consumer that is just going to assume the Ultra is better, so they pick it up because they think it's better, which is true, but probably not worth their investment unless they have the internet and the And the TV television, right? Like, does your family own a 4K television? Yeah, we don't own one. We have one, but we don't own any 4K content. Uh, yeah, it's all just scaled up. So, you know, you have those people who are just going to buy it because they want the best stuff um, mm-hmm. and will not really reap the benefits, at least for a couple of years. And then you have the people who, you know, are just going to see the price and go for the lower tiered one. And that's probably what Google's expecting. You know, there's yeah. no reason not to get the normal Chromecast, the second version. And then you have the enthusiasts, I feel like, who will know this and the people who really value 4K. I feel like this is one of those products. Um, and I think this could be said for almost the whole event. There are... Oh, what was the word they used? These are like starting points for something bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, that can be said for a lot of these products. And I think the Chromecast Ultra is another advantage of this, or another example of this. It's a product a little bit early, kind of like all 4K content at this point. Yeah. There's getting it out there, and I'm sure the price will drop too. Yeah. I just lower. wish they make it almost like, just from a number standpoint, just make it double the amount because a little bit over double. I That's think. fair. Yeah. And oh, well, I guess $35 and then it's 69 But like, if you just made it five dollars cheaper than double, so it seems like it's less of a of an increase psychologically. The other thing too is it only right now supports YouTube 4K and Netflix 4K, and then Google Play Movies coming out in 4K. So they only have three major sources of this content. Now, one thing I am curious, um, and I know you said Roku sells for about the um, about the same. Yeah, but. Does it, all Roku support 4K? There's only one, and you're right. It's over the price. So it might okay. be actually your cheapest foray into 4K. But once again, like the people who are enthusiasts usually have more money to spend, and they I think they usually go for something like the NVIDIA Shield or something more robust as a, as a home mm. theater solution. 
foray into 4K. That's nice. A foray into 4K. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. And also, most 4K TVs have a smart interface, anyways, which plays Netflix and probably YouTube too at this point. But who yeah. knows? Um, yeah, I, it's definitely an interesting market. But uh, again, I think this is just kind of them showing that they have this, they're putting it out there, and um, that higher price point actually might keep it at a point where you know it might deter some sales, which might improve customer satisfaction. Yeah, no. And I think it's just a matter of time where more people and more providers come. And, you know, that transition into 1080 or just the HD, right, was kind of slow and painful. Now everyone's on it. Now we get really get to root the benefits. I think it's just the beginning, beginning of the journey. Maybe conversely, I would say, if they put Google Play Movies in 4K but didn't release this device... It'd be kind of weird. Yeah, because then, like, I guess... How would you get it? <laughs> you would just watch on your tablet or your or your phone, right? Which is in 4K. So yeah. Maybe that's the rationale. I'm not really sure, to be honest, but that's It makes sense that they release something like this to compete. It's also kind of sad that the current generation Apple TV does not support 4K then, because mm. it's probably one of the last boxes at that price point Yeah. to not be able to. But that's, I think, a pretty easy... Not easy in terms of, uh, you know, manufacturer, but it, it's an, a straightforward upgrade for Apple yeah. on the roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I understand why they didn't do it. 4K is really not there. I'm sure it'll probably be something similar to Google where the content will come and then they'll upgrade it, kind of like Google's doing with Google Play Movies. You know? So I guess uh, we're lukewarm but supportive. <laughs> yeah, lukewarm. Uh, supportive if you're a hardcore Google fan or have a 4K TV and need to get that Google mm-hmm. Play Movies on there. Yeah. Um, so the next thing is probably actually what I was looking forward to the most was Google Home. So I believe there, it was discussed earlier on about four months ago during Google I.O., kind of showed in preview, and they kind of discussed it. So Google Home is kind of a wireless speaker slash assistant um, that is actually just directly against the Amazon Echo. And I want to argue that the Amazon Echo kind of created this market of smart assistant living in a physical device acting as a utility in the home. So it has speakers, it's connected to Wi-Fi, um, and you speak at voice commands by using the uh, hot phrase of... Uh, okay, Google. And uh, sorry if you are, are on an Android phone and we activated that. Um but yeah, it, it, it mirrors a lot of what the Amazon Echo does. It works with a lot of smart home providers, asks basic questions and queries. It also connects with a lot of major music providers, uh, including their own services, Spotify, Pandora, and stuff. But um, I think the one thing to note, which I was surprised with, I was afraid that it would be more expensive than the Echo and kind of cannibalize itself and not being able to compete on that metric. But it's actually $129, which is $50 cheaper than the current Echo. And I think that's... That's less than I expected, and I, that's really impressive to me. Mm. What interests me most about this uh, and the Wi-Fi and the Chromecast and the Pixel phones, and um, you know, I think when we're getting to the home, we're getting to the, to the potatoes of this. I'd say the meat would be the phones, and then we just went through the vegetables uh, to be very metaphorical. But mm-hmm. the home is, um, you know, Google is not the, uh, the newcomer to this market. Amazon, like you said, is the incumbent. And then it's kind of the same with the 4K, for the Chromecast 4K Ultra. Mm-hmm. There's already 4K players in there. Um, like Chrome, I mean, that was a little different, but they are competing head-on with people who are producing 4K content now. And I guess with Netflix in that regard. And then you have Google Wi-Fi competing with Arrow, and the phones obviously competing with Apple. All the AI stuff competing with Microsoft and Facebook and all these other people. And this event was really interesting because it was kind of a coming out of Google saying, you know, they'd been in these industries kind of competing for a little bit, but they'd also kind of been in their own space um, and this is a much more direct competition. Mm-hmm. I think. Not that they hadn't already been there, but 
uh, it's clear they're bringing the fight like right to their front door. Um, I think they were um, for a while really confident and almost comfortable in the fact that they collect so much data and they're mm-hmm. such a dominant player in the digital services that they were okay with even just falling up behind because all they have to do is kind of ratchet up the hardware manufacturing side of it and they're major players. And I yeah. think the this Google Home that- is like it's a perfect one, right? Like Amazon is the pioneer and they put all of this um, effort and R&D into this product that people at first when they got it thought it was ridiculous and now it's really grown into something organic. Um, I already know a couple people who are kind of ready to throw out their echoes because they've been waiting for the Google solution. And I think the main thing that interests me as someone is, you asked me too, right? It's like, I'm on an iPhone, I'm on an iPad, I'm on a Mac, right? Why would this ever interest me? Why don't I use an Android phone? I'm pretty much someone that lives in Google services using an iOS device and on a Mac because I like that hybridization and I like Google services. They've been around longer for me than mm. a lot of Apple's alternatives. So kind of having that assistant that kind of knows me for so long already is probably the biggest value proposition of something like this. Mm. I don't share quite your same sentiments on the Google services and Apple devices and everything, but um, speaking to the home itself, I think that's, um, you know, I think it's important to note, a lot of people are saying that the home is as good as the Echo, and it doesn't support uh, a lot of the same services yet. I mean, I'm sure that'll change, but mm-hmm. um, that said, it's definitely garnering the same hype as the Echo, and for the reasons you said, you know, it already has all the data. The demonstrations have been very impressive where they can, it'll rattle off your whole schedule, um, and it seems on those kind of core functionalities, not the extensions, it's just as competent as the Echo. So um, I agree. That's a really interesting device. Um, I, I think I mentioned this to you a little earlier, but uh, my personal feelings on something like the Echo and the Google Home, uh, and granted, I haven't used these, and I know people who have used them, uh, these in-home assistants, say they're, it's one of those things you got to try to understand. But yeah. to me, the value proposition seems a little preemptive. Um, I already have you know, Siri on my iPhone, and I do use it, but probably not at the point where I should. I'm not, you know, like when I'm cooking, I don't usually ask Siri something. I'll just look it up probably. Um, and not even because it can't answer it, you know, uh, but I, I just find it's easier or like I, to yeah. me, voice interfaces are still a little weird to me, like mm-hmm. socially, not that they're not working, but um, that's just a kind of a personal But maybe thing. in the privacy of your own home, I think that's where the strength and value of Amazon Echo kind of has emerged and revealed itself, right? People bought these things, didn't expect that it would be A, so good and B, be used so often that now they're flying off the shelves. Okay. Would you... I, Alone, I see it. If yeah. you're home with, like, your brother and your mother and father, you don't think it'd be kind of like, you know, they're watching TV, they're cooking dinner, you're like, hey, Alexa, um, who won last night's baseball game or something? Like, yeah. I, I just feel like it's just, like, a little... It um, is, yeah, no, definitely. Socially There are times when, you know, like, different. the phone is better and that private interface of finding information. But a lot of times, like, you know, they're doing dinner or having conversation or especially cooking when your hands are full and stuff like that, too. I think the other part of it is, like, I'm still in the boat where, like, Siri is just not reliable. Like, every single morning I need to set a timer to make my coffee. And I want to say, like, six out of ten times Siri works for me. Either mm-hmm. on my watch, on my phone, on my tablet. Right? That consistency is not there. And, like, whenever I've used Google's search app or when I was on Android and I was able to get Siri or get Google to do something for me, it was, I want to say, nine times out of ten, much more consistent. Hmm. And so I understand what you're saying. I think there's also value, too. Like, I'm looking for another, like, Bluetooth speaker, like, where I don't have to turn something on. I just can start playing in the morning or play my podcast. I think there's also inherent value of it acting as a smart speaker. Definitely. And kind of the way I'm approaching it is, like, strictly as an assistant right now. And, um... You know, I think the other side of this is they're 
uh, hubs for your home. You know, they connect everything. And I, I was reading how it's like, you know, like the idea is when you're at home, you don't always have your phone on you. You might leave it to charge somewhere. You might walk around. So I, I get like the rationale there where it's like you're always connected to these services. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't feel like smart home stuff is just quite there yet. At least oh, not definitely. The so um, that's what I mean when I say the value proposition is that like I understand where you're coming from. And I see like the value. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say like the Google Assistant isn't a quality assistant, that it works well. I, I totally agree with those statements. But um, I just think it... I, I haven't played there. with the Alexa or the home. Um, I want to. I'd love to try it out firsthand and have yeah. a more informed opinion with more experience. But um, I, I have a hard time seeing myself integrate it into my daily routines. Yeah, I'm, I feel exactly the same way, especially when the Echo first came out. Um, if I didn't hear so many variety of people both on the web and in person talk about how much of a utility their Echo is, I wouldn't have believed it and I wouldn't be someone as excited for the Google alternative. Uh-huh. But hearing people who are not very into technology versus the people who are also very technologically savvy, they find utility in it too. And that's what's making me very curious. I totally agree with you too, where it, you know, there's still a layer where it's sometimes more difficult or more inconvenient, but I think it's the tip of the iceberg. It's kind of like the same thing where, you know, moving to iPad and relying it as a center of computing, it's inconvenient sometimes. It's not the most refined product, but it's kind of giving a taste of what the future is moving towards. And that's what makes me excited in general as a technology enthusiast, right? It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's giving you a taste of what the future is going to be like. I totally agree. Like from a, you know, just an enthusiast perspective and wanting to try out new tech, um, definitely. Like I would be all over it. And I, don't get me wrong. I think Google Home is, is certainly very interesting and I don't mean to, yeah. you know, discredit that in any way. I I, I would love to try it out and play yeah. with it. Um, I, I would just bring up my own concerns no. of how I would fit this into my life. And the first instinct too is just like, I wish, for, my first thing was like, I wish Apple released their own version. And the second thing was like, I can't get Siri to work anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, the only reason why what's really stopping from clicking the Buy Now button on Google Home is, like, it doesn't have Apple Music integration, of course. And that's the one service that I rely on. Um, And so, you know, something in my heart makes me want to wait for the Apple alternative. But on the other hand, too, I've had frustrations with Siri in general that I, like, why wait for something that I might not be happy with? So... I don't know. I'm mixed on it. I'm just very excited. I'm as much as of a Google fan than I am an Apple fan, and especially their ability to read and my language and know what I need and want at the time I, you know, I'm asking for it. It's just super impressive. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It's somehow the price point drops or something goes on sale. But I've been very close to pre-ordering a couple times before we started recording. Um, there's a couple times too where I almost picked up the Echo Dot, but I think really? the Echo Dot is more. It's definitely farther away as a utility for me because yeah. I don't use many other services. It's even farther away from my use case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that price point, you know, being lower than the Echo, uh, definitely something to talk about there. And um, going back to what we kind of started with, uh, being a platform for their assistant, putting that in your house, making it something you can access all the time, uh, you know, that's crazy. I mean, to think about, you know, two, early 2000s, we, didn't, we barely had, I don't think I had a smartphone. I don't think anybody did really. So we went from that to not even 20 years later, we have a computer on our wrist, computer in our pocket, computer in our phone, on our, in our house. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I know we always have computers in our house, but like, this is literally a house computer, not a desktop mm-hmm. or a dedicated machine. It's meant to be used anywhere in the house while you're just walking around. You can speak essentially to your house. I mean, that's pretty crazy. And obviously, um, I'm enamored with that idea where you can just speak to the assistant and yeah. it responds to you. So, I, I mean, I think it's super cool. I just... I think there's going to be some social friction with products like these, at least from a perspective. Maybe I'm a great case study in why you're skeptical in using it and how it will go into your life. And I totally agree. People have told me they love their Echo and it's like life-changing for them. You just add something to your shopping list and it takes care of the rest. Yeah. Um, So I'm 
anxious to hear more. I just have some reservations. I think to go off your point, I think, yeah, the, exactly the reason why it's so exciting, right, is, like, computers are becoming such a commodity that we can put them in so many different form factors. And I think for me, as a technology enthusiast, what I enjoy technology the most when it kind of fades into the background of your life and it kind of just acts as this frictionless interface to augment your life. I think that's what technology should serve. I'm not sure if everyone feels that way. That's just something I've always sought out as a, as a user technology. And I think this is a perfect example, right? You know, 10 years ago, the family owned a PC that was on dial-up and you had to order a pizza. So you'd go in, type in the restaurant, wait for the page to load, and then get the number to dial, right? Yeah. At some point, if you're a family and you want to order pizza, you could ask Google to find the best pizza review in the area and order it, yeah. right? And like that type of interface is frictionless and kind of lets you get back to what's most important. And I, like that's what fundamentally gets me so excited about these types of products. Mm. No, I definitely agree with your excitement. It is pretty interesting. And speaking of excitement, we should probably should uh, get to the, the turkey, the most yeah. exciting piece of this. Uh, being the Pixel phones. So what was your first impression being, you know, a diehard iPhone loyalist, having had every iPhone since the 3G? First generation. First generation? I've so, owned every version but the 3G. But the 3G. Excuse me. I, of course, I nailed the one that you didn't have. Yeah, you were <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Um, this is probably one of those exciting things. It was just probably it's just as leaked as other as iPhones as well. So there was probably some deflation in the hype. But the same thing happened with, with the Apple event. But um, we know a great population of people who follow the Nexus and now Pixel line of phones as we follow iPhones. So it's super exciting to see what Google has to offer. The first thing I want to say is I think it's super smart for them to invest really in this Pixel name. Uh-huh. I think the Nexus has had this emotional burden of kind of being a compromised, compromised utilitarian, visionary idea of what, Google, what Android should be but doesn't always deliver. And I'm not saying that the phones are completely disappointing it's just that when they released that first Nexus and every time they released one, it was this grand concept and theory of what Google wanted. And then it kind of just never became super mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Pixel is a full investment in this, this new name, this fresh start, that they're very serious about their hardware and the, of their vision of Android. Actually, before we go any further, let's just stop and talk about the hardware for a second. Um, so let me just say, I think the phone looks nice. Very impressive phone, obviously. A lot of good things to say about it. One thing I do find odd is if you look at the previous Pixel products, they're all, without without a difference, they're all that consistent gray color with, like, the Google rainbow bar. Mm-hmm. And this phone is a stark contrast to that. I mean, you have black, blue, and white. Okay, black's, like, kind of close to gray. Yeah. But they look nothing like the previous Pixel products. They're all very distinctly gray. Um, the tablet and the laptop have always had the light bar, and they're always that gray. They're so rectangular. Yeah. I, I was... I mean, I know it leaked and, like, I saw the pictures, but my first initial reaction was I was shocked. Like, I expected it to look like the existing Close. Pixel line. Yeah. So, it, maybe in classic Google fashion, this is kind of like a depart even from the Pixel line, you know? It's really um, a unique take on the phone. And, and again, I think the phone is very impressive. I think, I want to just stop you there real quickly. Um, my first instinct when I saw the phone is it really reminded me of an HTC phone. Like, mm-hmm. a really close to the Nexus 1 that they released, which is the second iteration. And then I remember hearing somewhere or reading somewhere that actually that this phone is still actually being manufactured by HTC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can confirm. So there's like a touch of the HTC design language, but I completely agree. Like even the lack of the rainbow bar is kind of a deviation um, from the Pixel design language. But I think there's still definitely a Pixel design language from what that hardware team is doing. I wish it was closer aligned to what they did with the tablet because it's so beautiful in terms of the industrial design. But yeah, I was a little confused by that. Even like... 
the color naming, like the very blue and the quite white and stuff like that too, I feel like the Pixel had kind of like a very serious, almost robotic industrial sense of what they wanted to mm-hmm. do with hardware. And the Pixel phone itself is kind of a deviation from that. So I'm in full agreement with you. So, um, I mean, looking back, the Pixel C doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore. <laughs> like, it's it's a really weird product. Like, why did they release this thing? It doesn't align with any of their upcoming products. I mean, I guess it aligns with the Chromebook, but um, we didn't see anything about the rumored Andromeda OS that would run across platforms. Yeah. So this seemed like the ideal device for it. And then taking the Pixel brand in this other direction yeah. is really interesting. I mean, I know it's just hardware. And, like, the software is really the key thing here that kind of binds these together. But... Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very clear their phone division or, you know, I know they've had some changes in the leadership, so maybe this is a reflection of that. That's another element, another layer of it. I think, yeah, I think also just the pixel, like their foray into hardware is still very immature compared to many other companies. And Mm -hmm. they've been very reliant on other manufacturers to kind of help them, but then a lot of, they lose a part of themselves when they do it. And so I think this is a byproduct of it. I think as we see newer iterations, there's going to be a very defined, Google vision and taste when it comes to releasing this. This is probably just the first iteration. Or also, we could find out that it's really like a compromise product because you're right, right? Like they mm-hmm. lost their hardware partners. They're still relying on HTC. They're still developing this idea of what Pixel should be. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it looks it looks a little bit better. And of course, it'll look better in the second generation. But yeah, something about it too. Like we're gonna say a lot of great things about the Pixel phone, but like. I like the glass element on the top of the device, hardware-wise, but something about the design is very generic. Definitely. You know, um, well, hold on. First of all, i just like to say, I've been doing a quick search, and you can't find the Pixel Chromebook anywhere on the websites. Oh, I really? can't find it at all. So that's interesting. Um, oh, it looks like they're discontinuing it without replacing it um, from this Ars Technica article. So that's interesting. So it looks like the old Pixel stuff is kind of its own separate thing. Mm. Um, interesting, but I won't go too far into that. Um, speaking of the design, I think it's very clear. You know, and I know they said in interviews they intentionally didn't want it to look like an iPhone, but I, let's be honest, it does look like an iPhone. What? Like, yeah. My other question, like MKBHD, kind of noted, like, why is there a chin there? There's yeah. no physical home button. Is it because, like, did they invest in a good DAC? Like, is there like, did they emphasize like the headphone jack is really great? Did they like, what is that chin for? <laughs> I mean, the headphone jack's on the top, so. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Even I, like. Yeah, so what is I'm it not really for? Sure. There's some couple. There's some interesting hardware choices. Um, you know, if I had to make a, like an overarching statement, I, we're definitely being nitpicky right now. Like it's a yeah. pretty solid phone, but it's it's interesting. Like the choices that were made that ultimately are shaping this phone now. It's it's definitely a clean break and kind of a departure from the previous yeah. things. Um, and you know, I think it looks good. It looks pretty distinct despite its yeah iPhone esque design and shape. But yeah, I don't want like I never wanted the phone to look like an iPhone. I think especially Google has such a distinct design language that I've always loved that I was hoping for something more. I think I actually like the Nexus 6P design more. I think what Huawei did with that design is gorgeous. I think it's a great looking phone. There's mm. just something about this. I'm looking at the white version especially that doesn't that doesn't attract me in the same way. And I think it's uh Yeah, it looks like a less clean iPhone. I mean, just at a glance. I'm or, again, not yeah. taking the software or anything, but just like There's been better HTC phones out. 
than this. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, some HTC phones were gorgeous, like the HTC One and the lines after that, too. Yeah. Um, the blue, the black one looks really great. I think the black one has the same effect as the black iPhone, where it hides and, like, blends in a lot of the elements. It looks more of a one piece of material. I would agree with that. And the um, blue looks interesting. I've heard, like, it looks pretty good in person, actually. Yeah, I would love it. If I had to get one, I would want the blue one. And one thing you don't really, like, you can't really tell from the images too much, but it is kind of like a wedge shape. I'm sure if we saw this in the hand, it actually would probably be much easier to distinguish from an iPhone. But it's like this kind of wedge shape. There's no camera bump. So there are yeah. definitely some differences that the pictures might not be revealing to us. Um, like yeah, we're looking at renders. We were not fortunate enough to get uh, hands-on time with the phone. And there's been very positive um, discussion about how the phone feels in the hand. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been criticism with the Nexus line with a couple of different phones they released where they didn't have that great feel. Um, even with the, I think the 5X still had some of that criticism where it felt too plasticky. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen any real criticism. So the build quality is definitely there. Um, and maybe move on to something that's yeah. super important is the camera. I think the camera of the Nexus Nexus line has always been the Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not with the 6P, but I've heard mixed things. Um, but they've been touting this camera to be the best one. Um, DxO rated it as the best one they've ever tested with a score of 89, which yeah. I'm not sure how that works, but like... <laughs> Yeah, that's extremely interesting. Um, I mean, for reference, the iPhone 7 is an 86. When I was first like, okay. Um, but I think DxO, every point is pretty significant. So from, from just the benchmarks, it seems like a very impressive camera. Um, you know, that said, the Nexus 6P ranked above the iPhone 6S. Um, and I think there were a number of people who felt that it goes otherwise. So I would say, yeah. you know, um, it's, it's at least on par with the iPhone is my impression from this. Do you it, know what the Galaxy Note 7 actually got for the... I'm curious now because I've heard now consistently from a lot of her phone reviewers that the that camera is better than anything else. Better consistently than the It was the definitely iPhone. not higher than this. I was because this one really? is the highest. And I know the second highest is the iPhone 7 Plus. Um, oh, okay. So I'm not totally sure. Um, I'll have to look. I'm That's on their website interesting. right now. Um, the other thing that gives me confidence in the camera too is right. one of the major issues with cameras on Android phones, right, is the lack of integration between hardware and software, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how great, how many megapixels you slap into a camera sensor, if it doesn't work efficiently with the operating system, with that fine tuning, it's never going to be on that same level of something like an iPhone mm-hmm. or uh, maybe even a Lumia phone. Um, but this is the first, once again, Google-focused produced phone. So um, maybe it's too early to tell what it's going to be like, but I, I'm very, very excited to see um, what the pictures look like. Um, yeah, definitely. And uh, that shutter speed, too, looked really impressive. So they rated the HTC 10 as with an 88. I'm <laughs> yeah, just looking I'll at that now. now. And the Galaxy S7 Edge is an 88, so that's above some of those. It's really interesting because a lot of these rankings don't reflect what I've read in reviews necessarily. Um, they ranked the Motorola Z Force Droid a point higher than the iPhone 7. That's making yeah. me feel kind of dubious about these reviews. Well, you know, maybe we'll, maybe a key point. I mean, I haven't read any of these reviews, so I'm probably not the best one to comment on this, but my impression from this might be, you know, um, I, there's a couple ways to rank a smartphone camera, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, in terms of, like, absolute best quality you can get. Um, so my girlfriend had a Galaxy uh, S6, and a lot of reviewers said, best camera, better than the iPhone, blah, blah, blah. And she could get some really impressive shots out of it. She was really happy with it. But she found she had to kind of work with it. It wasn't like every shot was good. And her mm-hmm. low-light performance was kind of meh. She, if she played with it, she'd get something better. But um, I, I think maybe what DxO is doing, and again, I haven't read interviews, but it looks to me like it's raw power and capability as opposed to um, yeah the ease of use 
and consistency maybe. I, I don't know. I, and again, benchmarks are benchmarks. You know, yeah, you're right. You're taking with a grain of salt. Um, but I think it's fair to say it's definitely in the same league as the iPhone. Oh, definitely. It's not the same point now where it would stop me. Um, I just want to see more shots. I've definitely been impressed with many other cameras that are not the iPhone. Like the Galaxy S, Galaxy Note 7 stuff has been amazing. So I'm excited to see like some real world shots, like just looking on Instagram. If I can tell the difference or I see some type of performance issue, uh-huh. then I'll notice it. Um, but they're, they're really investing a lot. They did the same thing with the 6P mm-hmm. uh, camera. And I've heard mixed things. I've heard great things from some people. I've heard mixed things from others. Um, but, like, once again, do I want to point at the thing where, you know, the camera is great, but things like software like Snapchat are still not taking advantage of the native camera API in Android. So, like, when someone sends you a snap from Android, you can tell. And I know that's not a big deal, but that's like an everyday use case. I'm hoping that this alleviates the issue or motivates Snapchat to update their app. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that point. I mean, I, I think the benchmarks, essentially, like I said, you know, it just says it's, like, in the same league. Um, the software experience looks much better than the 6P. And I know with the 6P, the big complaint was it was a little slow. It yeah. wasn't the images were bad. They were usually pretty good, but um, the camera was not the fastest. So I'm excited to see that. And I think it definitely puts it on a much better playing field. Um, I believe they said they optimized it for the hardware too, kind of like what the good. iPhone does. Okay. So it should be a pretty consistent experience. The camera app looked nice from the videos. Um, again, we'll have to wait and see. But um, yeah, so that looked good. And then... Um, Maybe to go with it, uh, they also announced that if you buy one of these Pixel phones, um, there's also, we forgot to mention, there's two models. Um, there's the standard Pixel and the Pixel XL, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they all have the same features. There's really a parity with features. The only difference is the battery capacity. Yes, battery capacity and uh, 5.5 inches versus 5. 5 inches. For screen size. Um, so having the alternative, um, probably some people are upset that, you know, the 5 inches is now the standard small size. For a lot of people, it could be a, a much larger size. But, you know, once again, you kind of see that mirroring of, you know, the iPhone, iPhone Plus. Um, you also have, like, the Samsung Galaxy Edge yeah. 7. Samsung falls almost the same paradigm. Um, I think that's super interesting because I just took out my... Um, my old HTC M8, or sorry, um, my HTC 8X, and I took out my Motorola, Motorola X second generation, of 4.7 inch phones, and I believe a 4.3 inch phone, mm-hmm. respectively, and they're so small now that I switched to the iPhone uh, 7 yeah. Plus. So it's crazy how quickly phones have gotten big. Um, but I mean, I'm very happy with the bigger size. Yeah. And I definitely don't plan to switch back. So. The one thing is, like, the great thing side. is they invested in having that parity of features, right? That's always mm-hmm. a big issue with people. Like, I want to get the, I want the small size of the seven, but I want the dual cameras, and I want, before I want to do OIS. Um, I think it's, I think they did it on purpose, and they were really mindful to make sure that both phones, no matter which size you buy, gets all the capabilities. Definitely, definitely. And uh, to what you said in the last part, the Pixel phone has no optical image, stabil- image stabilization. Oh, still. No, so apparently um, they did show a video with their stabilization turned on, and it did look very impressive, but it's not optical image stabilization. It's all software. It's all software. It did look very impressive, like to their credit. They made the argument last year, and I heard complaints about it being shaky and the low-light performance, so I just want to see it to believe it. Apparently the sensors are also kind of bigger, so maybe they're taking a larger image and then kind of cropping, cropping to get it. that. Yeah. Something like that. Who knows? But um seems impressive. I believe it. Like they they're really putting the weight behind it. Google has some of the best engineers and stuff like that too. They've had many years to get it right. The only reason why I have this kind of a doubtful voice is that they've been saying this for how many years now. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> right? This is year. not the first Nexus is this is the first pixel that's true, but we've been through this for five or six years, right? Mm-hmm. And they've always said, oh, the camera's getting better. So let's keep talking about the Pixel. Um, camera, pretty good, at least from the, the initial impressions. Uh, the customer support, that's pretty big. Yeah. So if you go to the settings tab, 
you can swipe over and you'll get 24-7 customer support either through a chat or um, I think through a video call. Yeah, and that's when they're able to also remote into your phone. So if you have an issue or don't know how it works, it's a great option. I think for people in our generation um, or the tech savviness really doesn't mean much. But I think this is a great option if you know if you have parents and you're on an Android ecosystem to give them these phones, right? That's mm-hmm. a major barrier. So two things on that. I don't think you can remote into the phone. I think you can just see what's on your screen, okay. um, which might be a point of contention for some people. But um, much more relevant... Um, I, I have mixed thoughts on this. I think it's definitely the right thing to do and the right mm-hmm. direction to go for them. You know, previously with the Nexus phones, people have complained there's not really support once you get it. You don't really have a manufacturer to go to like you do with Samsung, which again, isn't as good an experience as someone like Apple, which has a store where you can go and speak to them, yeah. a real human being. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, they're not the first ones to do this. Amazon did this with their Fire Phone mm-hmm. and I believe with a lot of their tablets. And well, granted, those weren't huge successes. I didn't, I was surprised I didn't hear more about that, you know? I'm sure it's a good idea and good in practice, but my concern is, you know, this is your phone, right? If your computer breaks, you call help with your phone, right? Yeah. If your phone breaks, how are you going to call help if your phone's broken? You know? Yeah, like, if, the core, if the core help comes from you interfacing with the phone and the phone's broken, then how do you do it? But I still think this is an important step, right? Like, the main, a main barrier is, like, leaving Apple and going to Google is, like, you don't know the 100 number. You don't have that face, I think that's why, like, Samsung made that conscious effort to put locations in Best Buy where they can act as that interface. And I've seen those types of customer interactions. Um, I don't know. Like, it, I don't know. It just gives me reassurance. If, if my parents weren't on iPhones, like, and I was on Android, I would buy them these phones, knowing for a fact that, like, if they don't know how to turn off Wi-Fi or something happens. See, I, th- I think you nailed it right there. Like, if you didn't know how to turn off Wi-Fi, to me, these uh, this support section seems like a glorified, I mean, maybe not glorified, but... Um, a, a better, perhaps, tip section. Um, you know, and that's good because, like, you can get questions like, how do you turn off the Wi-Fi answered? Yeah. But this can't tell you what to do if your screen won't turn on or if your power button's stuck down. Yeah. Like, things like that, but, which are, I feel like, more... Oh, yeah. Um, I think there's... Serious well, issues. So, so I, I'm not... I'm like, I, I totally agree. I think I start off with this, but it's, it's definitely the right thing to do and it's definitely, like, a yeah. good... You know, the best you can get without having physical stores. Yeah, exactly. But, um... I think you're undervaluing it. I think there's a reason why, like, the reason why Barnes & Noble's Nook has lasted so long is because that le- level of support, where it's not like I have a serious technical issue, but I don't know how to do this, and I don't know where to go, and they people drive to Barnes & Noble. I've seen it personally. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a reason why that brand has lasted longer than we expected, and I think Google doing this is a true investment in doing so. Um, that level of support, like, that customer interaction, we don't always need it and when we do need it it's because something extreme happened to our phone but there's so many generations of people that don't have their children living with them and you know want to use something that's not apple they don't have that type of support Mm -hmm. i think it's actually very underrated all right you know you worked in retail so i'll definitely see this one to you but um i i do think there's still uh it's definitely the best step forward but um i still think you know it's a step behind the store but yeah, no, it's not an alternative. Like, that's another issue. Like, if I ever went to Android, and I don't see myself ever investing into going to something like Samsung. If I went into a Nexus phone, like, there's always a deep-rooted fear. If I dropped the phone, I cracked it, right? There's uh-huh. a different... I'm not saying there's no level of interaction to get a fix. It's just yeah. a different different level from the one-on-one personal interaction I would have going to the Genius Bar. Okay. Whether or not it's faster or cheaper or whatever, people can argue that. And I've, had, I've heard people having actually good experiences, you know, calling Google and getting the phone swapped out, even at no cost. But... 
for me personally, I think I, I'm so used to now having that interaction with someone where they go in the back, get the new phone, or they fix it. Um, it's hard to augment that experience when you have no retail presence. But I think this is the closest you're going to get. Mm, agreed. Agreed. Um, the next thing, probably going with the camera is, which is really <laughs> exciting, um, is unlimited Google Photos backup in full resolution. Yeah, that's huge. You know, again, this is exactly what happened with the Fire Phone, remember? Yeah. So I, there's actually a lot of similarities between this and the Fire Phone. Um, hopefully that's not a death sentence, but... Uh, yeah. I think the same way that the Echo might fall in competition with Google is the same reason why like Amazon's vision of a phone is they just didn't have the infrastructure and the customer data mm-hmm. as the same at the sheer scale. I think a lot of their concepts and the way that they need to sell devices and tailor the customer needs are correct and even sometimes better than Google's. They just didn't have that back-end store of data that Google does. Mm, I would agree, but yeah, I mean, there's not really... Unlimited Google Photos backup is obviously phenomenal. I don't really know what else we can say about that, really. I mean, it's a huge reason to buy the phone, and I think I mentioned to you, like, this would almost be just a great camera, albeit an expensive camera, but if the camera is as good as they say, like, wow, why would I just buy this? It's it's a camera that can take unlimited pictures at any resolution. It's uh, It kind of makes the, you know, that phone, oh. the next bit, Robin? Uh-huh. The, their, their concept was, like, the phone would constantly, smartly move stuff off the phone onto the device. I had my own dubious thoughts about it because... I think the, the sheer speed of technology is going to grow to the point where one day we won't have problems with storage at the mm-hmm. price points that we have. Um, but, like, yeah, like, exactly. It's your phone will take care of everything. And once again, the issue of photos kind of fades into the background because the phone is doing all that intelligence for you. And I think this is this is Google playing at their core strength. I think Google Photos is one of their strongest, most focused products. And by having this as a value proposition makes the Pixel ever more valuable as a product. Definitely. I mean... For existing Google users, it's like, why wouldn't I buy this phone just to get the unlimited storage, right? Yeah, like, I'm drooling. Like, we're both sitting here. Like, like I pay for Google storage. You're running out. And, like, we use Google Photos. I use Google Photos heavenly. And just the idea of full resolution unlimited with a device, like, I wish my iPhone came with that. Yeah. I switched to iCloud backups uh, mostly because of the full res- resolution. And, like you said, I'm running out of the free storage with my email. So, uh, definitely an interesting proposition. Um, I could definitely see the appeal. I recently had my sister run out of space, and I was like she got to get on a backup service, so interesting. I mean, that's a huge reason to buy this phone alone, I feel like. Yeah, I like. I think Google Photos is one of the most refined things, but like once Google refines those other experiences, like the custom support and the way that the software and hardware, it's like such a great value proposition, and it shows the core strength of Google to sell this hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, so another one we have, uh, this is definitely like a smaller point, but it has a fast charging, no wireless charging. I think the kind of, uh, if you've heard our previous podcast from this current season, we had a, a kind of we had a discussion about wireless charging and our thoughts about it mm-hmm. too. Um, the one person I do know, and maybe she is listening, who does own a Nexus Six P, was miffed that there was no wireless charging. Um, I like I still don't see the value of it, especially like in twenty sixteen. The current value proposition of wireless charging, I think, does not outweigh the convenience of fast charging. Um, but what do you think? I think it's, I mean, the same argument as 4K. It's cool, but the infrastructure is just not there yet. Um, and I mean, I guess for, with both, the technology is not there yet. I would say the same for 4K because the bandwidth is, you know, it's there, but it's not widely available. And the same with wireless charging. I mean, you have wireless chargers, but the range is pretty short. And, and truthfully, I feel like it's not that useful in your own home. If you had to go somewhere else and like, want to make a large area charging surface, it's probably the best solution. But it's other than that... It's just so slow. It, like, they still haven't battled physics yet. Like, the speed of, like, fast charging, like, Qualcomm fast charging is nuts. Yeah. No, I agree. And there's definitely disadvantages to it, but, like, like I said, it's just not there yet. It's not there. And so, 
I'm not sure if it was just a hardware limitation where they just couldn't fit the wireless charging or maybe they were following the same path where like they just can't get it to the same customer experience. It's maybe something like Apple would want to do. Um, but there are customers who are upset about it. I think the fast charging is so exciting. I believe it's, what, 70% in 15 minutes? Something like that. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think a lot of manufacturers, Apple, Google, most of the big manufacturers, with the exception of Samsung, I've kind of, you know, wireless charging was hot for a little bit, and now it's kind of like there's no utility for it. So few yeah. customers use it. I don't think it's worth the extra space in the phone. Yeah, so the fast charging, I think, is excellent. Um, you can get somewhat fast charging on an iPhone if you use a faster a larger brick and that's why i mainly use anchor chargers for all my devices i wish it's charged 70 percent in 15 minutes um so that's one thing i'm drooling over with mm-hmm. a lot of android phones that is pretty cool did they talk about the capacity itself it was 2700 i believe for the pixel and then about 3200 milliamps for so it's comparable to a lot of the current flagships okay um it's similar to the iphone as well okay uh, with the bigger one having over 3000 milliamps so Interesting. it'll last you over the day especially with the new you know um not this current version of Android, but one before it with Doze and their memory or their energy management while it's asleep or if you leave it out on the nightstand. I know really old versions of Android drained terribly, and now it's to the point where you don't really see a difference. Mm. Mm. I would agree with that. So battery stuff looks good. Um, I'm going to breeze through this next one. So USB-C, headphone jack. So headphone jack, it's there. Mm-hmm. And I believe they have stereo speakers at the bottom. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So the uh, audio exp- Bottom firing stereo speakers. Awesome. So the audio experience is pretty exhaustive. They have pretty much everything there, which is nice. Uh, and then one that we actually did not list, but it's pretty big, is it is the first Google or Android phone with the Google Assistant. Oh, yeah. So that is, I mean, that's across Google Home uh, and I, I proposedly other Google products in the future. So Google Assistant is kind of the iteration on Google Now. Um, it's supposed to be more responsive. It's the same assistant in Allo, which is their chat app for mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty big. I mean, this is a departure. And this and Daydream, which we're going to talk about after, are examples of Google putting their own software on their own devices for the first time, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty interesting. I think it's very important for them. I think they've been... I'm not sure if this is... I think they've been too altruistic in their plans and implementation of Android that they kind of forgot their... Like, they forgot to focus on their own core vision. And I think that's what happened with a lot of the Nexus phones, too, competing against the big names like Samsung, LG, uh, Motorola back in the day. I think this is a regain of focus on their own services and hardware that can make them a real market leader and not just Android itself, but against all their smartphones. Like, Android is the best-selling mobile operating system, but Google's flavor and their own hardware are nowhere leaders in this race. And I think this type of focus and their strength in software and AI is could put them over the edge. Mm. I wouldn't quite use the same words you used, but I definitely see this as a much stronger push for them to be in the devices market and getting a slice of that pie, uh, which is the profits of Android, sold, Android phones sold. Um, and they were very clear. This is the first phone to get it. They didn't say it would be the only, only phone. Yeah. So I'm sure these will come to Galaxy phones in due time. But I would agree. I mean, they're definitely making an aggressive push. And I think that's what they're going to capitalize on. You know, all the latest features, first and foremost. Um, kind of the same cry as Nexus is only, but now they're applying to specific features. Yeah. So um, kudos to them. You know, it's really making it a differentiator. And the unlimited storage is awesome, too. So yeah. um, there's definitely a lot of reasons to get this phone. I, I can't say a ton about Google Assistant. I tried an Allo. 
and it seemed a lot like Google Now to me, to be honest. Yeah, but I think this is, um, like, we can argue that all these devices that we've listed are just vehicles for Google to get into the home, right? And mm-hmm. hopefully, we bo- maybe we both agree on that. But, oh, like, totally. the same way that Amazon sells their devices so cheaply, it's just a mechanism so they can make more digital sa- more physical and digital sales, right? The same way where Google derives a lot of their value from just ads and collecting your data. So if they can make compelling devices where people want to buy it and use it, that it just kind of plays into their ecosystem where they really derive a lot of their their revenue and a lot of their value as a company. And so this totally makes sense. I haven't played that much with it either. Um, I downloaded Allo, I believe. Allo is the text uh-huh. one, right? I have mixed feelings still. I've, I don't I don't know why it's fragmented. I don't know why they're deviating <laughs> from Hangouts. I don't know why they're not making a Slack competitor. Well, that's not this episode. <laughs> yeah, I've already talked about this. If we can talk about it more on Twitter, you can reach me at Candice Poon. But I still fundamentally believe in what Google is doing and they're playing to doing an assistant and kind of having that competitor you, you can even argue, actually, let me put out a statement and let me know oh, man. if it's, I'm not sure if I fully believe it, right? But like, does Google's assistant, and I don't mean just Google search, but does Google assistant still have, does it have the same name recognition and like general customer knowledge and trust as even now an Alexa or a Siri? Um, I guess to that point, I would say, did Google now ever have that same brand recognition? No, I think that's why they couple it with the Google name, you know? Exactly. Like, I think okay, Google. Like, you don't say Siri or Alexa, you say Google, and it's all one brand. I think the term, or the word assistant is irrelevant. It's like a way to showcase it and mm-hmm. um, a way to explain it. You know, it is your assistant, but uh, it's very little. It is the Google assistant or just Google, you know, making it your own Google, like I said. So, so I would agree. I mean, there's no real branding there. It's just kind of using Google. Yeah, exactly. So, like, they could have played that game either way, right? Like, they could really play on the name brand recognition of Google being your number one search assistant. But then there was also, like, they kind of lost out because, like, the, the assistants made by other companies with those names kind of adapted and turned it into this personality and this character that we know of, you know, Alexa, Siri. So I think them making it the assistant kind of living in the underthreads of a lot of their technology is them trying to regain that kind of that mental, that mental knowledge, I guess I want to uh-huh. say. The same way that Alexa and Siri has entered our vocabulary. The naming approach is really interesting, and I'm not exactly sure. I guess probably the logic behind that is it's a ubiquitous platform. It's probably going to be on a web, just like the Google searches now you know, with voice. So um, that's my assumption. It's all yeah. about this being a ubiquitous platform. is why they go with Google, because that's how most people recognize the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, you know, while I did say Google Assistant isn't significantly better than Google Now, the previous iteration... Uh, Sundar Pichai was quick to say it's early days. I think that's what he said a million times. All this stuff is yeah. early days. So I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of this. Um, and I definitely agree with you. You know, the reason they have this hardware, which they clearly uh, said, is it's just a platform to get the services and to get their AI. Um, you know, as is the iPhone and any other smartphone at this point. But um, yeah, you know, it's an interesting take on it. I There's really not that much to say about the Google Assistant, despite it being kind of like the headline feature. Um, but, you know, it should be interesting in the future. Definitely something to watch. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then probably the last thing on our list that kind of goes along with the Pixel phones is they also released um, the new Daydream headset. So they spoke about this a little bit on Google I.O., but this is their virtual reality headset. Um, they're releasing one that um, and one that comes in three colors. And um, the co- interesting perspective coming from the company that kind of made famous the cardboard viewer is that they wanted this VR headset to kind of act like a piece of clothing. So some journalists joked that it looks kind of like a carpet, like carpet wrapped around a, a Samsung VR. But this idea that it's supposed to be light, convenient, um, less gadget, and more personal utility, I think it's a really interesting perspective to take. 
Yeah, it is interesting. Um, I <laughs> I think this is one of the things I disagree with Google on the least. I think it's kind of the wrong way to think about VR. You know, like you wouldn't wear a VR headset like a piece of clothing. I don't I don't ever see that being a possibility. Like you wouldn't wear this all the time. You know, why would you want to be plugged out of reality like that? It seems very odd. Um, I get the point with it being light and it being like something mm-hmm. you just toss on, toss off, but. I think part of the appeal of virtuality is kind of it looks futuristic. Like, I think it's in that stage right now where it's so new, you kind of want to yeah. highlight you're doing something hip and cool. Like, I, I, get, I don't think it looks bad, but I think the I, I think this trend. is one of the concepts that's a little bit too premature, but, I, like, once again, I think I think it's the right way to think about it, right? Like, the same way, like, back in the day when you bought an early generation HD television, mm-hmm. it took up the whole room, it was large, it was, like, it might be noisy, it was obtrusive, right? It was this giant gadget that you have in the middle of your household. Now, when you buy a 4K television, it's like the bezels are so thin, it almost looks like a piece of art on your wall. And it kind of fades into not being a gadget or electronic, but just an appliance or a decorative element in your home. And I think that's the same perspective they want to take with the headset. It's not a gadget. It's a utility that blends in with the rest of your lifestyle. Okay, let me ask you this. Would you hang a picture on your wall? Yeah. And don't 4K TVs kind of look like, you know, picture frames are so elegant then kind of like a piece of jewelry, like a picture frame, like beautiful. Yeah. Would you put a sock over your eyes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm not, like, so I'm not arguing that the fabric thing is uh-huh. like the perfect thing. Like, it looks really weird, right? Because it it's, yeah. it's not, but like, I think that's the mind, like that's the type of thinking that they're going with. I, I, I was partially joking. Like, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And like something you can just toss on and wear, but to me, like, you know, I think a much better metaphor would be like a pair of glasses or something like that. But like a pair of glasses is a fashion statement because you, you're always wearing it. Okay, but I think it looks too much like fabric. Like you wouldn't. Put, it is fabric. I don't like it. I don't. I just personally, you know. I mean, this I is like, not anything to do with the functionality, but I think it looks just kind of. I, I think no matter what, at this point in 2016, if you're wearing any headset, there's a famous like what the Times Magazine cover of the guy that founded Oculus wearing it, and he looks like he looks like a giant dork. I think no matter what, you're wearing something over your face. It looks obtrusive, but that mindset of turning it, like removing that stigma. And kind of redesigning it in a way where it doesn't look like you strapped a giant-ass Samsung phone to your face is, like, a progressive way of thinking about how VR should be accepted by the mainstream. I totally agree that it's, like, you know, trying to get it to not look like that. But I actually feel like they took it kind of in even worse direction. You think, like, you think that's worse looking than you strapping? Like, I'm looking at your, like, Wii U remote, right? And sometimes when I see people (laughs) use it, it looks like they strap that to your face. It's, like, plastic. It's very utilitarianism. It has the same design language as either like a plastic headset or your phone. Is that the same way? Is that the right way of thinking something that will go on our face? No, I don't think that's it either. But honestly, I don't think VR headsets will look acceptable for quite a while. I think the technology needs to get to a point where, um, and I know there's reasons that it's like so big because of your viewing angle yeah. things like that. But I think it has to get to a point where it's much sleeker. It doesn't like, like literally we're talking about like four inches jutting off your eyes. Yeah, I'm not you know? like I'm like, not the one that thinks that the, like I would wear it around and right. say it's a fashion device. But I think like th- maybe it's too early in their implementation of doing so. But I think this is the most intelligent way of doing it. It might be too early, but um, the same way like they they loved it when they said the Google Home looked like a fabric or not a fabric an air freshener. Right, and I get that because you would put that in your home. But I feel like this doesn't align with traditional notions of what you put over your eyes. Like, I know people yeah. compared to, like, ski goggles or something like that. This does not look like any pair of ski, ski goggles. goggles I've ever worn. You know, I, I think... I don't it, think it looks like a sock. You think it looks like a sock? I think it looks like a, like a sweatshirt sleeve. I think that's slightly better than a... <laughs> our producer just taking her sweatshirt sleeve and putting it over her face. And she looks kind of And imagining... I think it's... I don't know. There's something, like... 
I think if a lot of people buy it, like, there is, like, there's already some dorkiness of you putting cardboard to your face. True. But, you know, cardboard has that connotation, especially in recent years, of being, like, a maker kind of thing. Like, cardboard is a prototype material. So that fits very well, I feel like, with Google Cardboard. And the thing about the Oculus and the Rift, I mean, the uh, the Rift looks insane because it has all those little, like, diodes on it. You look like like some sort of fly because you have, like, that hex kind of grid on your face. So, like, isn't that industrial technical look off-putting for the mainstream person? Like, people who wouldn't normally approach VR the same way that people wouldn't normally approach something like... And I lost my train of thought, but you know, like uh-huh. it, it's I understand what you're saying. Like it's off-putting. It looks like a high-tech gadget you could touch and it'll break. I get that point, but I think VR, by the nature of being something you put over your head, yeah. and like it's not a keyboard and mouse. You know, there's not that many inputs. Yeah, it's 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 different. Like I, my father's into VR, and he's not into a lot of other technologies, but he sees those things. He's like, oh, cool, like future space. I think you know, and I, and I, I I'm not gonna say the Oculus or the Rift are the best design things ever but i think something more in line with like um and you know maybe i'm more of a nerd than you so maybe that's this right now but i, I think people's expectation of vr is something so uh, tech so futuristic that they're okay with well look at the, look at cell phones i mean these don't look like articles of clothing they still look distinctly futuristic still elegant still well designed but it's distinctly something from the future like this one simple sheet of glass it's mm-hmm. by aluminum like it's it, it it's kind of developed its own thing, and I don't think using clothing as a metaphor is necessarily the right thing to do. I mean, we should probably get away from this because there's been a lot of time. Yeah, like, I'm not song. trying to say like it should look like a piece of clothing. I think like their use of fabric is an attempt to make it less of a gadget and more of an experience and utility. I, I would agree it's an attempt. Yeah, it's an <laughs> I attempt. just think I, I just personally don't like it. I like, I think it could work. I don't know. Like, there's something deeper. Like, this is the type of like human design thinking that like people should invest in technology like you can put a million dpi and like have a million cords and like it's super accurate but like if you wanted to move mainstream and have the general people accept it like you have to design it in ways where like it can flow into the people's consciousness without being so off-putting okay why is it that your google cardboard viewer looks like uh, old school viewmaster because it plays on like the paradigm of like looking through something right, right. and i think traditional paradigms of this don't look that right you know, I think yeah. what people expect, if, if it looked like the Viewmaster, I think that would have been good. I think that's yeah. a great idea because it's very clear what it is. The purpose is like kind of explained just from looking at it. Even but the Viewmaster itself is a temporary holding, right? When you put in a traditional Viewmaster, you're only going through, what, 10 slides? It's a temporary solution, right? Like the Google, that Google Viewer has a strap. It's supposed to be worn long term. It's on your, it's affixed to your face for extended periods of time. I just need to disagree. Like, like why do you wear a hat? A hat's made of fabric. Okay, but I mean, it's covering your eyes. What covering your eyes is made of fabric? Like a night mask. <laughs> okay. A night mask is made of fabric. It covers your eyes. People wear it. People get them in hotels. You can get like high quality ones. Fair. A neck pillow. Fair. A scarf. I just a burka. I just think it looks kind of ridiculous. I, like, it doesn't look great. It looks really weird. And like the softness and stuff is super weird. And it's not aligned to what we expect from I mean, them. I'd probably see it in person too. Like I might have a different impression, you know. But the pictures, I'm just not enamored with the design. I think it just looks um, just not like what I'd expect. It's for me, you know? Yeah. But whatever. You know, maybe, I'm, maybe I'll prove wrong. Maybe it'll be like the standard for VR design. And you're just come. Just to me, it, it gives it a stark... It makes it seem more like a toy to me. I think, like, it's attempting... The I mean, opposite. it is a toy, kind of. It, yeah, it is still a toy. Like, the same reason why, like, 
I think the current Apple Watch design is still very rudimentary, and I was slightly disappointed that they didn't update it because it still looks like they just non-consciously strapped a mini iPhone onto your wrist and called it a day, right? Like they put all this effort in the, the bands and stuff to make it to a fashion device and they pivoted off of that because they couldn't get away from that paradigm where it's still a gadget onto your hand. It's something that you wear. It's a piece of jewelry. It has deeper paradigms of what someone does as with a watch and like they pivoted from that. And now they're more okay with it being a, uh, a uh, exercise device because people are okay with strapping a Fitbit to their wrist for the benefits of tracking steps. You know, maybe this is where, like, I think just our backgrounds deviate because I personally thought the Apple Watch looked great. Um, but again, like, you know, I'm... I, I think, that, like, I still think the Apple Watch looks obtrusive. If they really wanted to invest the energy and have more of the mainstream, they could have worked more on the design to be less. Like, I still see it as a gadget. I still see a value of a traditional watch and, like, the hardware of it and, like, the way it sits in history. I mean, but the reason it looks that way is because it's not a traditional watch, you know? Like, yeah. I think... I'm sure they addressed this point a hundred times when they were developing it. And I think, you know, it, when you see an Apple Watch, you know it's an Apple Watch. You know Fitbits, it's an Apple Watch. The new Fitbits look like Apple Watches. It, maybe not exactly, but like, you know, with the big screen and stuff like that, like it's very distinct. It's like, okay, you have a smartwatch on. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, for, for obvious reasons, you can't get away from that because you need the screen to interact with. So. Yeah, of course. But like, there's just something about it where it still literally looks like a gadget. And we've met people who like want that benefit and they're better okay with going with a Fitbit because like the design is more distinct. It's longer. It's more socially acceptable that it's like a fitness band and like they don't like the look of the watch or they like a traditional look and like they invested a lot of time into making these bands fashionable, but like, like the hardware itself could have been improved the same way where like I like, I love my Apple watch. It's still just a gadget, but I think it could be escalated to another level of thinking. I don't know if I would like my Apple Watch if it looked just like a Rolex or something. I don't want it to look like a Rolex. Well, no, but, but I, like, I'm saying like a traditional watch. Like, yeah, there's like there's just the design language though of something about the watch. Like they put the digital crown to make it more of a paradigm of the watch, but it's still there's something missing. And I'm having a hard time verbalizing it, but like I think they're like still trying to achieve something. I see what you're saying. Like it's very clearly not a traditional watch. There's no mistake in that. If you see it, you're gonna know it's an Apple Watch. Personally, like you know. I wear it because it's an Apple Watch. Like, that's what I like about it is because it's different, because it's not a regular watch. I didn't wear watches before this watch. Yeah. And because it's so distinct, like, I love that about it. I think it looks, um, maybe, you know, I think this is just I think that's from our background, too, because I wore a watch. I wore, like, a very traditional mm-hmm. watch beforehand. And maybe for me or just, like, the way we view things, like, I grew up with, like, a watch was a piece of jewelry. It was, like, a status symbol. It's, it spoke a lot about you and your taste and the way that you view time and view your personality mm-hmm. and stuff professionalism. I mean, this is, this is for me, the way I view time and professionalism. Like it, it, under your definition, this is like what I would get. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So maybe that's just, like I wear it, I wear it to work. I'm not saying it's unprofessional, but I still just think from a fundamental level, it's just, they strapped, they strapped the computer to your wrist. They strapped, they literally took the, the design language of an iPhone, shrunk it, put it on your wrist and said, this is it. Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit of that. Yeah. There's like refinement to it. But, like, this is also a two-year design. They didn't update the hardware. And, like, and like this is coming from me. Like, I buy all Apple hardware. I was the first one to jump on board. I wore the iPod Nano on my wrist <laughs> as a watch, right? So, like, I fundamentally believe in smartwatches and how it's that simple. But, like, like, there should be deeper thinking about how it needs to fade. And I think it's just too much of just a gadget mm. in the way it's perceived. And I think, like, the fabric is weird. Sweatshirt material. But, like... 
you wanted to become an experience. You wanted to be acceptable. You kind of wanted to go into like the inner seams of like what society imagines the next generation. And I don't think it's there yet. I think it's still playing off of a lot of what we see as a gadget, a toy, a electronic device. You speak like gadgets are bad, but like I love gadgets. Like no, I love gadgets too. But like, I, I think VR though is in the place right now where it it has to be a gadget. Like I think that's you know what I mean. Like I. I I disagree with you, but I understand where you're coming from with a watch, where you say it looks like a gadget, not a watch. And I can understand to some people how it would be off-putting. I mean, me personally, I love that it looks like a gadget. Like, that's one of my favorite parts about it. Yeah. But I understand where you're coming from that point much more so than with VR. Because I feel like with VR, because it's new, you know, gadgets just are one of those things where you bring it out and everybody talks about it and wants to know about it. And even yeah. if they don't like it, they want to find out more. And yeah. I feel like the Google one doesn't look like a gadget to me. But and it doesn't, I actually but find it, that I Don't you think it's like more approachable? I feel like if you saw it on the counter, you would just walk past it and think it's like some weird case or sleeve or But if you like. wanted to like hand a headset to your like let's say like your grandmother or someone, right? And the idea of virtual reality, the concept of her being able to look around in an immersive environment is super compelling, right? There's people in all generations really into the idea. You hand them something with like plasticky or even something like the vibe that has cable sticking out to and you hand her something that's like made of, like, material that she's had forever in her life. And you hand her both of the things. I just feel like, you know, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think if you gave it to a child, he wouldn't say, ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't. Bus. But, like, what you're selling is not the idea of a gadget. You're selling the experience of VR. Well, so the vehicle all... that you deliver it is, like, it's, in the end, it won't matter. I don't think it looks like the future, I guess. Because, like, like maybe that's maybe that's what I'm trying to argue, Right. You're right. Like, virtual reality right now derives itself into a gadget, right? It's mm-hmm. You rely on these devices to produce this experience to hopefully get close to the taste of what virtual reality is, right? But, like, the vision of virtual reality is somehow, you're somehow immersed in this environment both in auditory and visionary ways, right? And so if the channels of you doing it is less of a gadget and, like, fades into a material that you're comfortable with, like, that's super important. I, I think we just fundamentally disagree on how VR should be conveyed. Yeah. But I mean, we're getting into the point where we have a VR episode, <laughs> so I'm probably going to cut it off there. Um, I will just agree to disagree, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> it's getting pretty late. But to kind of sum it up, I mean, there has been a lot of demonstrations about um, Daydream. It looks pretty cool, but honestly, it's it's really hard to say at this point. It, yeah. It looks promising, but who knows? Seventy-nine dollars separately come in three different colors, or free, free pre-order. And that's super, like, you know, we know a lot of people actually with, like, Samsung phones that have the headset and enjoy the experience. So bundling with the Pixel phones, especially people who are Google enthusiasts to have this experience where they can be the first-generation advocates, super smart on their part. And despite my gripes on the design, um, and I actually have a lot to say about this, so we should probably talk about it later, but I think um, if you're going to get a Pixel phone, you should definitely pre-order because um, it looks like a great way to just try out VR in an experience that's a significant step above cardboard. Yeah, I like can't wait to try. I've only really had experiences, deep experiences with the Google app on cardboard with a couple, like with the ViewMaster and stuff. So I'm ready for the taste of the next step. Mm. Okay, well, I think we'll call it there for now. Um, definitely have to have a VR episode now. If you like this or you want to hear more content from me and Candice, hopefully you do, you can reach us on a myriad of platforms. Uh, well, so make sure you stay tuned. We're on Spotify if they've launched the podcast thing yet. We're on iTunes, for, first and foremost, probably our biggest channel. Tune in. Tune in, Google Play, um, pretty much anywhere you find podcasts, we're probably there. And if we're not, send us an email, and we'll get there. You can also tweet at us, at Tic Tech Talk Show. I'm at Russo underscore Rob, and Candace is at Candace Poon. Um, you can also email us, uh, Tic Tech Talk Show at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive on the Google products. 
and our debates. <laughs> um, and yeah, have a great week. Bye, guys. Bye.